On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we review the latest news and information, discuss PPP forgiveness, review the latest on provider relief fund reporting, and in our focus segment, discuss the latest on infection control with Lori Rodericks and Ann Geyer. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is increasingly challenging, but organizations that outsource their regulatory oversight to Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies have an edge. HS works with ASCs to oversee their quality improvement program, run their meetings, develop educational programs, and always be prepared for surveys. For more information or to schedule a consultation, visit our website at ah-strategies.com, email us at info at ah-strategies.com, or call John Gailey directly at 585-594-1167. Welcome to episode 130 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for May 16th, 2021. Recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. Well, we just finished our fourth annual spring retreat for inventory mm-hmm. healthcare strategies. That was a lot of fun. It was. It was so nice to be in person. I know. You know. I'm not always the most social person, but I just, I loved having people around for a change. I know. We had, uh, how many, I think at one point, 13 people, plus then on the last day of the retreat, as is mm-hmm. our tradition, we bring the families together also, and yeah. the house was full. Um, nobody had to wear masks. Everybody mm-hmm. was vaccinated. Uh, yeah. Um it was it was a great time and it's a great uh, we we did a, a recording and there will be a, a podcast and as a matter of fact while everybody was here we did mm, we, I think we recorded like three or four <laughs> interviews one of which uh, mm-hmm. we're going to play today uh, so it's nice that we're finally getting a little bit ahead as uh, as our audience has probably figured out by now we're we're still <laughs> we kind of fell behind <laughs> we're yeah we're still falling behind but uh, and also I was the uh, keynote speaker for the New Jersey uh, Association of Amateur Surgery Centers mm-hmm. spring virtual conference uh, which was this last. Last week, so we uh, we did a bunch of interviews for that. I can't publish that until I get one more uh, interview in, but I'll probably yeah. post that later this week. Uh, as is our way, we usually do uh, for the state association spe- special episodes. And of course, this week, uh, new CDC guidelines came out. Actually, uh, in the middle of our conference, the CDC uh, published guidelines that uh, uh, significantly changes the regulations, the requirements, or the suggestions, I should say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, related to masks. So, of course, we live in the state of New York where it really doesn't matter. We're still going to have to do what we were doing before. But I think uh, the I think this is an indication that, uh, that we're finally, finally getting beyond the... Uh, yeah. The crisis mode right now. Mm-hmm. So and New York's making some changes too. Yeah, they are. As a matter of fact, in the middle of the uh, of our 
of our retreat. This always seems to happen soon. In the middle of the mm-hmm. retreat, major things happen. So uh, the governor did come back with some changes to the rules with regard to uh, New York requires all patients to be tested prior to surgery for COVID. And they have uh, removed that requirement for people that are fully vaccinated. Unfortunately, it actually adds a little bit more stress because now we got to verify, you mm-hmm. know, we got to validate that those people have that. Uh, we need to have proof of that prior to yeah. surgery and uh, they also have to go through a screening process. So mm-hmm. I'm not mm-hmm. sure it saves us any time, but it definitely is more convenient for patients not mm-hmm. having, mm-hmm. you know, that are fully vaccinated, not having yeah. to do that. Or recently recovered from a documented a- case. Actually, that's a very important thing, uh, yeah. Sue. And again, this is New York State, but we do know a lot of our listeners are from New York. But uh, yeah, a big change this time, which had been a, a sticky point for a while, yeah. is that uh, in the past, if you tested positive, uh, you could not have surgery until you no longer tested positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now they came back yeah. and said that is uh, what, what was the rule? You might remember better than I do. You had to be recovered. I think it was from, within, within the last past three months, three months uh, but a certain amount, maybe 10 days out from your actual date of being positive um, and no symptoms. Right. I'd have to double check that. And also, I believe you have to follow where your region is in the positivity yeah. rate. So That's it's true. not totally cut and dried. You'd, yeah. You know, so if you're listening, you, you know, you'll want yeah, you're going to want to check into it or, or, or mm-hmm. touch base with us if yeah. you're one of our clients, of course. So uh, one of the things we were talking about during the retreat, we had so many, so many subjects to talk about. It was a a shortened retreat. We only uh, were able to do it for two days. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about uh, a lot of our clients are going through surveys. And uh, one of them had mentioned that as a reward for all the staff uh, after passing the survey, they... uh, One of our patron members, actually, wasn't it? Oh, yes, that's right. It was one of our patron members. You're right. Uh, Told us that they were going to uh, bring a food truck Mm -hmm. by Mm -hmm. uh, on one of the days after the survey. um, And they can all, you know, get a ticket from the administrator or whatever and go and grab their lunch. So that's a really nice idea. And it sounded like a simple concept, Mm -hmm. too. I Mm -hmm. I just... uh, Somebody I I, I heard around here, somebody that you know, um, did um, a food truck for their nurses for Nurses Week. And it was the same idea. You get a ticket, they pull up, you have a choice of a few different things. So, Are you trying to hint to me that for (laughs) Nurses Week, I should have brought a food truck to our house No, no, we got lots of food during the (laughs) retreat. We're good. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, these retreats are a great opportunity to bring people together. We've said this many times. This has been our fourth annual uh, retreat, and Mm -hmm. we do record an episode from uh, from our retreats about how important it is to get away with uh, your staff or at Mm -hmm. least your senior staff just to talk things through. And the place we're thinking about doing a retreat another time that would be. We're going to actually go somewhere instead of our house. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and it looks like a really nice place. Yeah, we're looking forward to that. So let's uh, talk about some uh, recent news, just kind of an update on uh, the um, uh, PPP funding, the... Anybody that got round one of the PPP funding now should be probably looking into getting uh, to applying for their loan forgiveness. A, a borrower can apply for forgiveness once all the loan proceeds for which the borrower is requesting forgiveness has been used. Now, many of you probably used it a, a year ago. Uh, borrowers can apply for forgiveness anytime up to the maturity date of the loan. If a borrower do not apply for forgiveness within 10 months after the last day of the covered period, then the PPP loan payments are no longer deferred and borrowers will begin making loan payments to their PPP lender. Now, remember, to apply for loan forgiveness, you're actually going through your bank, the bank that lent you the uh, the PPP funds. 
uh, and you need to complete the correct form. Now, each of the lenders will have their own form. The lender can provide you with either the uh, SBA Form 3508 or the SBA Form 3508EZ or the SBA Form 3508S. Uh, or as I said, the lender equivalent. So, uh, that means that, you know, a lender can choose to form, uh, to use one of the SBA loans that have been pre, uh, created or they might use their own. When, uh, for example, our, uh, our bank that when, uh, for amateur healthcare strategies, when mm-hmm. we asked for forgiveness, our lender actually created their own form, which was based upon the, uh, the form 3508. And as you can imagine, the 3508EZ and the 3508S are shortened versions of the application for borrowers who meet specific requirements, mainly uh, as to the size of the loan. And your lender can provide further guidance on how to submit this application. What I found is the, uh, the lenders have been pretty good about uh, about helping people through the process. And uh, at least uh, for our company's uh, process, it was it was actually quite simple. But before you do, when you, before you ask for the forgiveness, by that. It sounds like a religious statement, doesn't it? <laughs> um, before you uh, requ- request forgiveness of your loan, you need to compile a bunch of documentation. Obviously, you're going to have to get all your payroll information, uh, you know, provide documentation for all payroll periods that overlap with the covered period or or the alternative uh, payroll covered period. You need to have bank account statements or third-party payroll service provider reports documenting the amount of co- cash compensation paid to employees. Uh, the tax forms are equivalent third-party payroll service provider reports for the periods that overlap with the covered period or the alternative uh, payroll covered period. And that would include uh, typically the, the Form 941, as well as any state quarterly business and individual employee wage reporting and unemployment insurance tax filings reported, or that will be reported to the relevant state. Also, you're going to need your payment receipts, canceled checks, or account statements documenting the amount of any employer contributions to employee health insurance and retirement plans that the borrower included in the forgiveness amount. Uh, now, uh, of course, you could use the PPP funding for non-payroll expenses. Uh, the, that would be for expenses that were incurred or paid during the covered period and showing that obligations or services existed prior to February 15th, 2020 types of things that could be included is uh, business mortgage interest payments, getting a copy of the lender amortization schedule and verifying uh, receipts, verifying payments or lender account statements, uh, getting business rent or lease payment documentation could include a copy of your current lease agreement uh, and receipts or canceled checks, verifying eligible payments uh, and business utility payments, which would include copies of invoices and receipts, canceled checks or account statements. And the list that we just provided uh, that is required to be submitted to your lender, of course, is not all-inclusive. And then just submit the forgiveness form and the documentation to your PPP lender. Complete your loan forgiveness application and submit it to your lender with the required documentation and follow up with your lender to submit additional documentation as consultant. Just keep on top of it. Consult your lender for additional guidance and provide requested documentation in a timely manner. Um, if the uh, the uh, Small Business Administration undertakes a review of your loan, your lender will notify you of the review and the SBA loan review decision. You have the right to appeal certain SBA loan review decisions. Your lender is responsible for notifying you of the forgiveness amount paid by SBA and the date on which the first payment will be due, if applicable. So as we know, in addition to the PPP funding, there was also the Provider Relief Fund, which was additional uh, payment through uh, Medicare, referred to as the Provider Relief Fund or PRF reporting. All recipients of Provider Relief Fund or PRF payments must comply with the reporting requirements described in the terms and conditions and specified in directions 
issued by the secretary. Currently, information uh, is available on a, a web page, and I'll provide a link to the web page uh, for payments exceeding ten thousand dollars in aggregate, with some exclusions. Now, the provider relief fund reporting requirements were issued on January 15, 2021 in accordance with the Coronavirus Response and Relief Supplemental Appropriations Act of 2021. And in response to uh, feedback, Health and Human Services is continues to review the guidance and provider relief fund reporting timelines. And then they're going to post any updates on the website as soon as they're available. So keep an eye open. But, but more importantly, right now the registration is open. It's been open for a while. I think we've reported it earlier. But I do want to remind everybody that just to get onto the registration page, and again, we'll provide a link to that. Recipients of PRF payments exceeding $10,000 in aggregate must register at the Provider Relief Fund reporting portal. At present, there is no deadline, or at least as of the time of this recording, for completing the registration in the portal or for the reporting. Recipients will later receive a notification about when they should complete the second step of the submitting the reporting requirements information on the use of funds. HRSA will send a broadcast email to the email address you provide during the registration process when that reporting is done. The registration process uh, reportedly will take about 20 minutes to complete and must be (laughs) completed in one session. In other words, you can't save a partially complete registration. So make sure you have all the information required to register before you begin. And uh, Sue, why don't you just list the information required to register? Okay, so you need your tax ID number or other numbers submitted during the application process, such as your Social Security number, um, employer identification number. Um, The business name, as it appears on a W-9 of the reporting entity. Your contact information, meaning your name, phone number, email, of the person that is responsible for submitting the report. You need your address, um, the street, city, state, five-digit zip code of the reporting entity, as it appears on a W-9. Um, The tax ID number of subsidiaries, if a provider is reporting on behalf of the subsidiaries or subsidiary. Payment information for any of the payments received, which would be the um, tax ID number of the entity that received the payment. Payment amount, the mode of payment, whether it was a check or a direct deposit. um, Check number or the ACH uh, settlement date. And you're also going to need to create a username in the form of an email and a password during that registration process. So uh, we'll try to keep you up to date on that. I, I'm surprised, Sue, uh, that um, that hasn't been finished yet. I know Alex from Amateur Healthcare Strategies mm-hmm. is, is working on this for our clients, at least to help our clients. Many of our clients will probably also work with their tax accountant to yeah. do this. So this isn't something you'll necessarily need to do yourself, but uh, keep you know, be ready for it. Um, of course, as with everything involved by the government, it's probably not going to have a lot of warning when it does come out. So let's talk about some recent experiences. Sue, this is – how many times have we heard this in the last week or month or year or forever? <laughs> recent requests from doctors, from the owners, mm-hmm. they want us to provide a checklist of responsibilities for administrators. In other words, they want us to give them a list of all the things an administrator needs mm-hmm. to do. Um, and uh, and then there's uh, – they've also pointed out that there are software programs out there that tell you that they will always make you prepared for a survey. In other words, yeah. that there's a – Again, same thing, that there's a checklist of all the things you can mm-hmm. do. And it is so frustrating to me. I mean, we have checklists of – I mean, we, we have lists of all the different things that a, a, that a an survey administrator will look for right, that it, an administrator has to do. Right. But they're never all-inclusive. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with this sort of thing I, – I like to say that this is this is a, a task orientation type approach. Mm-hmm. And uh, leaders, you know, uh, surgery center administrators, surgery center – 
nurse managers. They're not task-oriented individuals, or they shouldn't be. They're leaders, which means that they really need to, you know, be ready to. Uh, I mean, they can't go off of a, a pre-programmed list. Mm-hmm. And now, almost, if you have an exact list, then when something else comes up that they have to do, they have, you know, they they may not take it as their responsibility, right. or they can come back and say, "Well, that isn't on my, my exact job description or whatever." But they have to be willing to step in during those times when they see a need. Yeah, I mean, I. I I mean, sometimes I wish that it was as easy as that to mm-hmm. to to put everything down on a, on a piece of paper and say this is what we do, this is all we have to worry about. But you know, saying that we can put everything down on a list or or use a computer program that uh, through a series of checklists gets mm-hmm. you ready for a survey really minimizes the role of uh, of administrators and nurse managers. We're not pencil pushers. Matter of fact, the next uh, staff edition that we're going to do, which I think we're going to record today uh, also and probably get out this week, Mm -hmm. uh, is going to talk about quality improvement for staff members. In other words, giving the staff members an idea of of how quality improvement works. Um, We're not pencil pushers. We're not, this isn't a paperwork process. This is uh, it's a way of life. It's a, uh, you know, a quality is, is, uh, is something that you have to uh, embed in your culture. Um, And uh, administration isn't just you know, documenting everything that's happened. It's important, but it is not the only thing that an administrator is involved in. So administrators have to be able to react to emergency situations and checklists help us to make sure we are prepared, but they don't provide us with all the tools that we need to be effective in our jobs. Mm So uh, we need, we need to uh, be trained to know how to react to the, the myriad of things that happen. You and I say this a lot to our clients, especially those poor administrators and nurse managers that get into the job. You know, how mm-hmm. long do we tell them it's going to take to learn it? You know, up to a, le- a year. You have to yeah. kind of go through the whole cycle mm-hmm. before you become At comfortable. Least. And, yep. and uh, we were talking to our friend Ann Geyer, uh, and, and we we actually interviewed her recently, and, and we, we agree that this is, uh, this is a challenging uh, profession that we have here. And uh, you're constantly learning. Ann and mm-hmm. I and, and Lori Rodericks, our other uh, surveyor on our team, you know, know full well that we're still learning. Mm-hmm. You know, and all of us have been in the industry for at least 30 years. So. Well, and some, some people really thrive on that. For some people, it can be overwhelming. But mm-hmm. people, like you said, you know, you love a challenge. You love it when things don't really go exactly right. So you can step in and, and yeah. figure it out. When we spoke to Anne, she's always trying to grow and learn. And, and the same thing with Lori. Yeah. And that's the type of person that will do very well. It's a hard thing to admit. But that is, uh, but mm-hmm. that's very true. I mean, I, I, I remember... Um, my last job as an administrator, mm-hmm. the reason I left is because I finally came to the realization when I had gotten everything working well mm-hmm. there, the place was uh, running like a, a, you know, a well-tuned uh, machine mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, that I was, I was bored mm-hmm. and that, you know, it's a hard thing to admit to yourself that you like a challenge. You like mm-hmm. when things are chaotic. Um, and uh, there's not a problem at all in the consulting yes. industry. <laughs> And then we needed to talk a little bit about contract nursing because people have really had to rely on that a lot yeah. lately with the lack of staff and with the unemployment situation, what it is. So, Yeah, I know. think we, we continued. I think uh, the drivers right now of, uh, of nursing shortages, I mean, we've always had a problem mm-hmm, with nursing shortage, mm-hmm. but it is quite severe. Now, it's not just nursing, by the way. No. Um, you know, we also have a, a problem in, in many of our areas with techs, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are organizations or agencies out there where you can hire nurses to come in for the day. These can be problematic. Now, many of these organizations are very well prepared for this, mm-hmm. and they have a lot of documentation. They they provide documentation and training. And 
the basic things like HIPAA, uh, you know, for example, and uh, OSHA and OSHA bloodborne pathogens. But keep in mind that for a surveyor, we need to have the same documentation for contract nurses that come in. They still have to go through all that training. They need to have training on emergency preparedness, fire safety. They need to know about infection control in your organization. You cannot just bring somebody in at 7 o'clock and have them, you know, working at 7.15 mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. they change their clothes. They have to have uh, some training. And I like to uh, to recommend that what you do is you bring the person in, you know, before mm-hmm. the date that they're going to be there. And I know that's difficult and yeah. sometimes even impossible. But you've got to set some time aside to make sure that they're well prepared for mm-hmm. uh, the role that they're going to assume. Keep, it, keep in mind, they're going to be taking care of patients. They're going to have mm-hmm. direct patient care. You want them to be comfortable with your policies. They, you want them to know where all the emergency equipment is. You want them to know yeah. where that, uh, that crash cart is. They want mm-hmm. them to know what happens if the fire alarm goes off. Because you never know when an emergency could happen. And even if it isn't a patient-related one, you want to make sure that they know how to get out, that they know where to find the fire extinguishers. But something you'd mentioned, John, is if you're doing, if you find you're hiring a lot of contract nurses, sometimes try to hire the same ones, have two or three that you hire on a regular basis, and that kind of minimizes how often you have to train new people. And you might find later on that they might want to come on to your staff, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. permanently and if the uh, if you have the ability to make that type of an arrangement with the agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, make sure that you have uh, proof of their insurance um, and uh, they need to have some competencies done. You need to make sure that uh, somebody observes them before they're left alone, you know, with mm-hmm. patients. So, uh, yeah, because you may do it differently. Some of your yeah. equipment might be different. You're, you're testing your um, you're in pregnancy or, or right. whatever you're using. You have to make sure they're trained on that specific um, equipment. Now, I, I'll say this. We've had, uh, you know, that being said, we've, at least among our clients, had some very successful mm-hmm. um, experiences with these contract agencies. And uh, But I don't want to minimize uh, the importance of this education here and making sure that you're well prepared for this. So enough said. And uh, Surgical Information Systems has signed up for another year of sponsorship beginning in June, uh, and they are celebrating 25 years of delivering surgical technology. We are so proud to uh, to have Surgical Information Systems on our team. Continued innovation and dedication to the surgical space yields a record number of ambulatory surgery centers moving to cloud-based software for revenue cycle management, clinical documentation, patient engagement, and analytics. Surgical Information Systems, the industry leader for business and clinical surgical software, serving more than 2,200 hospitals and ASCs. To, uh, I'm sorry, on April 13, 2021, announced that it is celebrating 25 years of surgical technology leadership. We are thrilled to be celebrating 25 years as a leader in information technology dedicated exclusively to the unique needs of freestanding ASCs and hospitals, said the president and CEO of SIS. SIS started in 1996 by developing anesthesia and surgery documentation products for the hospital market. As the volume of surgical procedures began to migrate to the outpatient setting, We leveraged our considerable talent and expertise to become the industry leader in software and uh, solutions for ASCs. So very proud to have them on board, Mm -hmm. and uh, congratulations on 25 years. So let's take a short break, and we'll come back and talk about infection control. We really haven't updated our audience on what's going on in infection control in a while. And we had this wonderful opportunity this last yes. week to uh, uh, to interview Ann Geyer and uh, uh, Lori Rodericks, who happen to be in the same place at the same time uh, <laughs> here in Rochester. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's uh, take a break, and we'll come back and talk to them.
Thank you for being a loyal listener of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. But did you know that you can enhance your experience and support the free podcast by becoming a patron member? Patron members have access to ASC Central, and add-on service at a very reasonable price. Patron members have access to our regular drop-in virtual meetings where you can discuss issues that you are dealing with in your ambulatory surgery center with the hosts and other members. Members also have access to valuable member resources, including a, a document library with a growing list of resources, including the rules and regulations, guides to maintaining compliance, example policies and procedures, infection control resources, example risk assessments, example committee and governing body minutes, and over 60 disaster drill scenario kits and example forms and checklists. Members also have access to some of the virtual conferences that we have presented, including the Provider Credentialing Conference, which we offered in December 2020. It's a New World Conference in 2020. Infection Control in-service to meet the challenges of COVID-19. And the ASC Mandatory Education Program, which is a valuable resource for annual education for your staff. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including the research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, you may visit ASCPodcast.com. To become a member, visit ASCPodcast.com. So uh, Sue and I are here in our studio in Rochester, New York, and we have two special guests here uh, that happen to be in town. And of course, uh, this is a recording, and nobody can see us, but on my left here is Lori Rodericks, Director of Clinical Services for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, who's visiting us here uh, and has uh, graciously agreed to be in the studio here instead of, uh, you, you've never done this, so you've always been in the... Um, I've been on the know, outside. Through Zoom. <laughs> and a real treat also, not that Lori isn't a treat, but Ann Geyer. Hi, happens everybody. to be in Rochester uh, with us, and uh, she joined us, and uh, we dragged her into the studio. Now, right now, our puppy... Uh, <laughs> Monopolizing Anne's time, right. I'm afraid. She, she's so we're, found we're, she has a friend. <laughs> so we're in the studio here, and Anne has to uh, pet the, the dog while we're doing this. And, of course, Anne, you had to wear black today, yes, too, didn't right. you? Right. So we, I and thought... And Tinker couldn't be here. <laughs> Oh, I wish we could see all of this. This would be cute. First of all, we are all kind of jammed in this room. That's the, the challenge in the studio. And, the, and when I designed the studio, you know, more than a year ago, it was set up for eight microphones. We still have the eight microphones, but with all the extra equipment, there really is no room for eight people in this room. But uh, but I do appreciate everybody uh, coming together. Wait, so we thought we would talk uh, today about infection control because, first of all, we haven't talked about that on the podcast in a while. Lori, you and I are going to be doing a, a new uh, full-day uh, session, hopefully soon, to kind of update the uh, the 2020 session, which uh, uh, we did in uh, April. That was the first conference we did together, yeah. uh, Did first conference the company did uh, for our infection control people uh, back in April of 2020. It was kind of like just learning how to use all the equipment and uh, broadcast out to the world. Now we're it was all frightening, frozen. absolutely it was frightening. frightening. <laughs> well, do you remember also that the power here went off? Oh, yeah. In the of it. And I had to keep talking. And you had to keep talking because, and we didn't know if it was ever going to come back. Neither did I. <laughs> it's like, please, oh, please. Oh, man, we have come a long way, haven't we? So we, we thought, we're going to actually uh, do two recordings here because, uh, as is my way, 
uh, if I have people in the studio, I am going to take full advantage of them. So we're going to have uh, this discussion, which is about infection control. We're going to do another one on leadership because as we've been sitting around the last couple of days here talking about things, we've been talking about leadership quite a bit. Um, Anne, of course, is passionate about education. She's passionate as I, as am I about leadership. And we just had a wonderful conversation about it. We did. The last time. So I, I kind of am sorry that I didn't have a microphone upstairs as oh, we were yeah. talking about it. But let's, uh, let's focus on infection control for a minute. And of course, I feel surrounded by nurses. Well, I am surrounded by nurses <laughs> yes, here. Yes, you are. Uh, so I'm really the one that just has to keep quiet and maybe ask the questions and and uh, see what everybody else has to say that really understands this. But so we are uh, we're recording this in uh, May of 2021. It's uh, 14 months now. Can you believe that? 14 wow. months into the pandemic. No. And what are the challenges? Uh, so so first of all, Lori, I'm going to ask the question. I'm going to play the devil's advocate. I'm a doctor in a surgery center. Most of our people are vaccinated now. The, the pandemic's over, right? I mean, we can just go back to our same old ways and not do anything, right? Only in Florida, <laughs> which is where I'm from. <laughs> That's right, only in Florida. So uh, talk a little bit about how life has changed and how <laughs> that change is probably permanent in many areas. Yeah, no, I um, in healthcare anyway, I don't see masks going away for a very long time. And I think we're we're kind of used to wearing them, unfortunately. But I think that healthcare and probably restaurants might be the last ones that'll give those up. I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, <laughs> but I do want to applaud the pandemic for keeping us having uh, low people numbers in our centers. It's kind of nice that the staff are focusing every ounce of their um, energy on the patient. And not on the family members. That's a really so to say. Good, that's a really good point. I never was thinking about that. Yeah. Well, I'm just a cranky old person, <laughs> so I I think that is a she's plus. A, she's an operating room nurse. I've always said about operating. Oh boy, I'm surrounded by operating room nurses. Uh, operating nurses is the reason that they're operating room nurses because they don't really want to have the patient awake. While they're talking to them, except a, in a surgical a center, acknowledgement of that. <laughs> yeah, but it's you know I, I you know I find that's probably kind of nice. And when you think about it, it also takes some pressure off of your front desk staff because they're not watching what everybody's yeah. doing. Uh, they're not having people coming up to them constantly. Where's my family member? You know, why is it taking so long? And you know, all that good stuff. Or can I have coffee? Um, they're not entertaining the five children that were brought it, with the patient. Right. So, you know, that's one good thing from the pandemic that we can take away from. And we can use infection control as our um, reasoning behind that. But the uh, the other thing is just time. I think now um, in our centers, everyone realizes they need to take the time to to clean things and disinfect things the way they were supposed to. You can't wave the wipe over the bed and expect it to be taken care of. Now we have the uh, the two minutes, the three minutes, or whatever the dwell time is for our product, and we're kind of sticking to it. And I hope that that is maintained going forward because otherwise it's why even use it? Why bother, you know, disinfecting if you're not going to let the disinfectant have its, uh, the time it needs to work? Uh, you know, so there's, there's that. Um, I think a lot of people might have gotten away from air exchanges and whatnot. Um, whether that's good or bad, 
we I don't think we'll know for another, you know, 20, 30 years when we all grow another arm or, you know, third fingers, you know, you know, stuff like that. But again, you know, the more comfortable and, and that's not even the right word. I think the it's just become part of our life that there's a pandemic and it's okay. There's a pandemic. So let's just continue on. And nobody's had uh, bad outcomes, luckily, that we know of um, surgical-wise. So then maybe we don't have to do it. So it's not – I don't think it's as upheld as it was originally, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. People are not necessarily um, all panicking over N95s, which is fine. But, again – Check to see if you changed your policies and if you um, have implemented protocols, you still have to follow what you said you're doing. Um, if you're going to make changes, uh, you know, the inspectors or surveyors are going to say, well, show me the evidence or the rationale behind why you're not doing it anymore because it says you are. Um, so, you know, sit with your um, infection control people, sit with your anesthesia or, or in your governing board and decide, okay, we're not going to um, wait, you know, 22 minutes for a room turnover and this is why. And then you take it out of your protocol that we're no longer waiting. And and then then you, you, you're doing what you say you're doing. And that's one of the most important things is, is doing what you say you're supposed to do. Um, whether it's right or wrong, it doesn't matter. But as long as I don't mean it doesn't matter. Um, the fact is that you're practicing what you're preaching. And I'm sorry, there is a minister next to me. And I, I, I sometimes can't help myself. Um, but it, you know, it's that sort of thing. So, you know, that's Part of the current challenges is that if you said you're going to do this, you have to do it. Remember that. So, Anne, you have a different perspective. Uh, as the chief nursing officer for uh, SIS, uh, you have been locked away in your little uh, place Remote down in office. Florida there. This is one of your first trips out, I it think, is. actually. It's my very first trip on a plane in 15 months. Oh, my goodness. And uh, so you have a different perspective, and I, I'd like to draw on that a little bit, you know, because you've been talking to, uh, you know, clients of SIS yes. uh, over time, and, uh, and, and you've had to do it from isolation you haven't Absolutely. you haven't been right in front of them so yeah. talk a little bit about that experience and and the types of things again you come you know very different type of clients than, right. than we do here uh, talk a little bit about well that. our clients are software clients so the impact for us has been that our our sales reps couldn't travel and so everything's been remote it's put a tremendous amount of pressure on them for being on the phone from the time they get out of bed in the morning until they go to bed at night because there are customers are all over the country that's a huge challenge and then people don't take your calls because they're busy. I think one of the impacts that I've seen and the questions that I get from my clients and from people in the industry is all the confusion that's out there. And as all of you know, we have not been living in a vacuum. The CDC keeps contradicting itself. Dr. Fauci keeps contradicting himself. Um, The government keeps telling us one thing and then doing another. And people are totally confused. And if you go on the state association websites, the questions that are asked are repetitive. On Ask a Connect, you see the same questions. What are we supposed to be doing about testing our patients? What are we supposed to be doing about taking temperatures? That's going on today. And I think that it, we're already in a, an environment where people are stressed, mm-hmm. patients and our staff. So we're stressed. And now you don't even know if you're doing the right thing. 
So if you change your policy and say we're no longer going to do temperature testing, let's say, let's just pull this out of a hat, and but you forget to change your policy, yeah. and the surveyor comes along, and if it's a CMS surveyor who's looking for your COVID policies, <clears throat> excuse me, she says, but you say you're taking temperatures and you're not. Now you're in trouble. Now you meant to change the policy, but you never got to it. So I totally agree with what Lori said. Get with your infection preventionist. Put her in charge of keeping up to date with the policies. So if your state changes a mandate, then you reflect that in your policy and you have a printed copy of the mandate. You put it in the folder along with your new policy. Now you've got a chain that shows that because of this change in our state, we've changed the policy, and now you close that loop. And I think that for the near future, I'm not sure that anything much is going to change. I'm from Florida. We don't wear masks outside. I told them a story. Is this you all want to yeah, hear my story? <laughs> all right. So this is a true story, unfortunately. Um Governor DeSantis don't need to wear masks outside. And when you're exercising, I exercise outside every day. I've yet to put a mask on. My niece lives in a nice town in Florida, in Vero Beach. And her friend was out biking, her, her female friend. And she does that every day, wide um, path, wide enough for walkers and bikers to coexist. And she's coming up alongside of a couple that's walking, an elderly couple, and she's just going to go right around them. She's not going to stop and talk to them. The guy turns around and looks at her, and she doesn't have a mask on. Now, what would most people do? They'd keep on walking. What does this guy do? He decks her. He hauls off and hits her, knocks her off her bike. She had injuries sufficient enough to go to the hospital. There were people that stopped to help her. This couple kept walking quickly to their condo, but other people followed them. The police were called. Now, the biggest mistake I feel like is Ashley, the girl who got hit and got hurt, didn't file a police complaint. She didn't file a report or press charges, rather. But people are nuts. I mean, it's like they're the mask police, as all of you know, or the Karens of the world that are going around just looking for people that they can snitch on. The pandemic has turned us into a people that you don't recognize very well. And it's also had... A, a severe impact on personalities. Um, even in our centers, we think our staff's doing okay, but are they really doing okay? What's their situation at home? When I worked with John, and I think Lori was on that, we did that long podcast back in, I think it was in June, I was concerned about the mental health of our our patients, our staff, now our, our kids. If you've got kids, they may have lost a whole year in yeah. school because of virtual learning or unlearning. So, the pandemic has had a horrible impact. I don't see us ending any of this soon, although I would hope that the mass mandates would go. Now, I got to tell you this story, John. I haven't told you this. My husband, we go, we go out to eat in Florida mm-hmm. and we go in the restaurants, although the service has declined precipitously in the last month because they can't hire servers. Sure. Nobody wants to work, get unemployment. Carl wants DeSantis to issue no masks in restaurants and let the first restaurant that does that and there are lines out the door be the one to advertise and let other people see that you can eat in my restaurant without a mask because you're only wearing it for 10 feet anyway and you're going to be okay and everybody will be forced to reopen. But it's a new world. We're in a whole new world out there. Who would have ever thought? 
Well, and I think we've lost our, our civility. I mean, I, I we're going to talk about this, I think, on our next interview. We're going to talk about leadership. But I think it does impact, and, and as you said, and as Lori has intimated, our, our, uh, our patients are coming in with a very different attitude, or they're not able to come in with their spouse now. And, and while mm-hmm. that's nice for us mm-hmm. in the center because we don't have to babysit right. them. It's very uh, stressful it is, for it them. It's stressful. You know, my daughter, of course, had a baby during this whole in November, and you know, she, her biggest fear was that her husband would not be with her. And I think, you know, we sometimes forget these these surgeries that we do are just a routine thing for us. Mm-hmm. But for the patient, this is probably one of the most significant things that happened that year. And they do want that support from their, you know, our family members. So against that backdrop, we have to help reassure them, first of all, that they're safe in the surgery center. That gets back to infection control, that they can Very see. important. Yeah, that they can see the stuff you're doing. But also we have to be cognizant of the fact that uh, both our employees are challenged at home and as well as the patients are. Yeah. And our employees go home and they have a whole other job. You know, when they close the schools in many states, these parents that kept on working, like in our surgery centers, what were they supposed to do with their kids who are now home, virtual learning or not learning? One spouse had to be there, or you had to pay a caregiver to come in if you could find somebody that wasn't too afraid to come in. I know a friend of mine who lost her job as a VP of a surgery center because they had told the patient on the pre-op call that visitors were not allowed in the center. No exceptions. You had to wait in your car, whatever, they, whatever however they wrote their policy. Well, a VIP tried to buck the system. And she said, no, you cannot come in. It's our COVID plan. It's part of the plan. He calls chairman of the board who bucked the system, let him come in, and they got her fired. Now, she didn't do anything wrong. She was following policies. So you've always got that person that's going to push the envelope. And patients' families are quick to say, nobody told me that I couldn't come in the surgery center. Right, Lori? Nobody told me I was going to have to sit in the car for four hours in 90-degree heat. You know, it's funny. I was at a center yesterday, and I walked into the uh, nurse manager's office, and I look on the ground, and I said, wow, that is the funniest-looking defibrillator I've ever seen in my life. And what it was was a battery charger because, you know, being upstate New York in the winter, people sitting in their cars running, (laughs) uh, sometimes their batteries would die. And she... Isn't Couldn't that get over how many batteries she jumped. And I oh, said, well, I guess that's better than unplugging the toilets that, you know, sometimes the nurse manager has to do. It's part of um, your job description. Exactly. Job description. You know, so I, I was like, I would never have thought of that. I, oh, we don't have battery chargers like that in Florida unless you're driving a Tesla. Yeah, yeah right. But, you know, so I thought that was, you know, who would ever think that? No, that's you know? absolutely. So now that's got to be what, on your emergency uh, car? Well, and some surgery centers actually let the family members go home if it's going to be a relatively, you know, say you're going to be yep. two or three or four hours. But then you risk the chance of not being able to get them when it's time to pick the patient up. Right. Now you have a whole other problem of you sit there and you babysit the patient who's ready yep. to go home and yeah. you can't get the family member back. Right. It's um, People talk about this being our new normal, and I refuse to accept that. I feel like the new normal needs to be go back, going back to the old normal because until we do that, we're never going to realize that we have survived. Right. You know, I know that there are a lot of people out there that lost family members, and I feel terrible for them. I mean, it's there's you can't replace those family members. 
But for those of us that have been vaccinated and are still not afraid to travel and um, are willing to go out and help our clients, we want to be allowed to do that. So that's an interesting uh, topic, actually, is that as we move forward, I agree with you. I, I use that term, the new normal now, and I am uncomfortable using it. But it does bring up an interesting thing because I think, I mean, as part of quality improvement, I mean, we all live and breathe it and we are passionate about it. As being uh, healthcare providers, we know that everything that goes wrong in the surgery center turns into an opportunity for improvement. Sure does. And I think uh, we need to remember that, yes, we're going to go back to hopefully the way we were before, but taking those lessons that we've we've had so uh, and carrying that forward. So let's talk about that for a second. What, what do you think is, uh, what do both of you think? I'll start with Lori here. What do you think is the biggest lesson that you have learned or that you've seen people learn through this process? I, I don't know. I think that one of the biggest things that they've probably learned is that infection control is huge mm-hmm. because we always knew it was there, but now everybody's practicing it all the time. But does that mean they're doing it the right way? Not necessarily, because I do still believe that people are taking for granted wearing gloves. So they're forgetting about doing hand hygiene. Because they have gloves on. And that I see uh, uh, every single center I walk into. You know, so it's stuff like that. Um, I I don't think that it has affected the way, or at least I hope, um, nurses or um, any of the clinical staff interact with patients. I don't think that they're afraid to be next to them. I don't think they're afraid to hold their hand if they need that or even sometimes give a hug because you're still nurses exactly you know which is which is great um you know it's important um but there's also going to be those that are skittish and that's that's okay because that's you know it's it's a personal decision now It, it really is a personal decision whether i agree with it or not is not the point it's it's how does the that you know that staff person feel you know if they don't feel safe then they're not safe in their mind Mm -hmm. um and so now it's going to affect how they um provide care you know truly right um you know that sort of thing and and but but i think that's probably a really huge portion of it is that we uh, you know infection control or prevention has come to the forefront of the center and then of course that means it's come to the forefront of surveyors, whether it's um, accreditation surveyors or state surveyors or CMS surveyors, Mm -hmm. that's what they're focusing on. Why? Because, uh, you know, theoretically, COVID is an infection. And, you know, unfortunately, everybody's dying from it in, you know, as we are being told. So the the mortality rate is only less than 1%. Right. But, but again, as Ann said, it doesn't matter that if my family member or a good friend is that 1%, then that's a hundred percent to me, but still it'll, it'll quiet down at some point. It, it, everything does. I mean, but, uh, but I think that that will still be a major focus when it comes to, uh, oversight and in, in the eyes of the of the watchers. Lori, what I would add to that is transparency. You need to tell your staff why they're having to do the things that they do, that you didn't pull this out of a hat, mm-hmm. that if you're following CDC guidelines, it's because CDC, yes, yesterday they said this, but today they're saying this, so we're having to make a change. 
they need to understand why, and then a lot of times that helps settle it in their brain. We're mm-hmm. going through that with vaccines now because people are starting to rebel against the vaccines, and they don't understand. They consider it experimental. They don't want to take it. You can't make them take it because they individually have a right to not take it. Yep. But then if they say, "But well, you can't work here unless you took it, now they've just, they're out of a job. So you've got to explain the why. You've got to explain the rationale. And also, IP, that position is not a one-hour-a-week position. Yeah. And that goes back to what Lori was saying about how important infection prevention is. With, the, with all of the things that are going on with COVID and pandemics, it's almost a full-time position in and of itself. Yeah. And, and I, I want to uh, say one thing, too. I know sometimes we get... We talk about policies and we talk about protocols and and we uh, interchange that. My recommendation is that you don't change policies. You change protocols because policies are meant to be what they are. When new They're things meant to be the law. Yes. Yeah. And and when when new things come out such as the pandemic, now you have protocols that you're going to follow and those can change as Anne just said day to day. So you're going to change the protocols. Your policy is still in place for infection control. Your policy is still in place for hand washing. But your protocols might be that, you know, your hand washing is more vigorous or or the fact that it's changed from 15 seconds under the water to 20 seconds. You know what I mean? So So protocols are almost like how you do things. The policies are why you do things. Um, so I, I think that that's an important thing because, you know, if you're changing your policies every single day, you're probably not going to keep up with it. Protocols are easy. It's another sheet of paper. It's, it's and an don't forget to. your governing body has to be totally informed about all of that. You right. can't do anything without at least informing them, even if it's by email. And policies require board approval. Right. So Lori's right. I use the word policies just because that I do policies for a living. But protocols are important, but you've got to have the rationale behind them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought one thing uh, as a non-nurse that I find interesting during this time is that our infection control programs, since ever, as long as I can remember, were so focused on surgical site infections. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, we've, we've often said, <laughs> you know, we don't need our infection preventionists to know too much about communicable diseases because if somebody shows up with a communicable disease, well, first of all, we try to screen them before they even come to the center. And if they show up, we just ship them home right away. But what we learned during the pandemic is now we've got to deal with that. And we and, and I don't think any of us really were prepared for uh, having to screen patients before they come in, uh, having to deal with what happens if we find out after the patient was there that they had COVID. Right. So talk a little bit about how that transition has been you know, for the centers and what your thoughts are on on that juxtaposition, that that change that we've had to go through uh, in our policies. I mean, I think our policies, of well, all of our policies, as you both know, have always included things about communicable diseases, but it wasn't the focus of those. Right. Uh, in many ways, our, our, minute, our policies have really uh, focused mainly on surgical site, and what we've learned here is we have to, we have to switch. Well, I, I think, you know, originally when it, everything focused on surgical site infections was that was the only way that we knew we had a problem infection control wise in a center was if we had an infection. And, you know, fortunately, ambulatory surgery centers notoriously have an extremely low rate of surgical site infections 
nationally, which is awesome. But now we're realizing it's not just about that. And it's all the processes that lead up to the surgical site infection that we felt like we were doing. And now as we take a closer look with the microscope, we weren't doing as well as we could be. And unfortunately, we didn't know it because we didn't have infections. Right. You know, so it's like maybe we should have had infections so we could know there was a problem. <laughs> you know, really? Is that is that the answer? Is that the way that we yeah. learn? Yeah. But, but, um, but that's where now where all the microscopes come into play um, of people really getting educated on why they're doing things and the the reasoning um, for doing them according to uh, the manufacturer's instructions for use, depending on what the, what it is, you know. So so that's that's kind of a big deal. And then you know now it's also preoperatively. You didn't really think about surgical site infections preoperatively because there was no incisions yet, you know, and you know, so the staff in pre-op were, you know, okay, we were shaving. And then we realized, oh, okay, we can't use razors anymore because they cause a, a greater risk of, of uh, breaks in the skin. All right. So now they're using their clippers. Uh, but but now it's, okay, do you have a fever? Yeah. You know, have you had a cough? And, you know, <laughs> bless you, Rosie. <laughs> Rosie just sneezed. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you, you know, in the wintertime, if you live on, in, you know, in the north, Everyone's got a cough. Everyone's got the sniffles. You know, so you allergies know, you, now. Yeah, right. right. And and then allergies during pollen season. So it's it's very interesting. And and postoperatively, we do our calls the next day. Obviously, it's just to see how the patients are doing and if they have any immediate issues um, or questions. But once we talked about COVID and whatnot. We were possibly making the calls two weeks later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's adding you know, a level of complexity to the follow-up. It sure right. has. But, you know, in a way, that's might be when issues arise as well. You know, if I unless I have a raging post-op infection, I'm not going to know the next day. But I might know in a week. Yeah. And so when we do call it at 14 days or if we are calling at 10 or 14 days, we should also incorporate questions about their incision. We should mm-hmm. also make sure we're, you know, so do, looking at the patient as a whole, not just as a potential COVID person. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might catch things sooner, mm-hmm. you know, because it's it's different. But but it, it it's affected all areas. And same thing with sterile processing. You know, how many of your staff in in your uh, decontam room really didn't wear their PPE the way they should have? And now COVID has pushed the envelope so that they they should. And again, all along, it's been to protect them. But now it's more prevalent and we can use COVID as our rationale to push that envelope and have them be compliant because yep, the surveyors are going to be looking at that. But it's also now that you have a potential airborne or droplet type of um, exposure, you know, it, it's it's explaining the risks to them and they're seeing it in their neighborhoods. They're seeing it in the closed restaurants. They're seeing it in the grocery stores with people with their masks on, you know. So that's 
a plus that's come out, if you want to say that now our some of our staff realize, you know, they are important and they should take care of themselves, especially if we're providing them that opportunity. And then we have to support them and explain to them why we want them to wear it. It's not just because, you know, I say so. It's because I care that you don't put yourself at risk. And that's, that's I think, a, a good message to give to those staff members. Um so, you know, I don't, did I even answer your question? I don't know. I forgot what the question was already. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm sure. You've been taking a lot of notes as we've been uh, talking here in between petting Rosie, of yeah. course. So so what are your thoughts? I really don't have a whole lot more to add on this. I agree that's, about that's the surgery. That's usually what happens. She no, I so usually much. agree about I the social surgery site and uh, surgical site infections. I think one of the key takeaways from that is when you're admitting a patient to pre-op, I've said this for years when I've trained people in pre-op, ask if they have any open wounds, abrasions, cuts, anything on their body. You look at eye patients who don't put patient gowns on. A lot of them come from skilled nursing facilities, and maybe they've had a fall. Maybe it's a week old. So you say, do you have any cuts or bruises anywhere on your body? And they say, well, just on my knee. And they pull up their pant leg, and they got this raging infection on their knee. So that needs to be known before surgery. That was before COVID even. But we can't miss any of that anymore. We've got to do it. And I'm wondering, Lori, as I was listening to you about the post-op phone call, I'm thinking, Maybe we need, they're not mandated for one thing. I mean, right. no no accreditation committee mandates that, but we all do them, right? That's mm-hmm. a sacred well, mainly cow. Because one of the things that is recorded in accreditation is we need to know what the status of the patient was. Yeah, afterwards. at some point, That's the but, but way to not do it. not writing it. Yeah, right, people right. just call. So anyway, maybe we need to reevaluate those calls instead of doing them at twenty four hours, where you learn very little. Mm-hmm. You tell the patient, "I'm going to call you at." A week, or I'm going to call you at whatever it is that you're. If your state mandates you check in two weeks, well, then maybe you move that. You're still going to discover the surgical site infection. And if you've given the patient appropriate discharge instructions, they should have already gone to their doctor's office. And, so and it, called you if there was something absolutely. That urgent that you needed. And that's what you tell them. Right. But other than that, you kill two birds with one stone by doing your surgical site infection query and your COVID query. And your patient satisfaction query in one call. I don't know if that would work. I hadn't thought of it until I heard you say that. But um, we may just, that's maybe one of the things that comes out of this is instead of doing it the next day, when you learn very little for the most sure. part, because you're right, the signs of infections don't yeah. show up. It's, all all and you if, learn is if they've been puking. And, and, and by then they and so by that time they've already called their doctor because right. if it's the middle of the night they're mm-hmm. calling them if they've been sick all night long so um, yeah it's going to be interesting to see where where yeah. this ends up. I, I think I'd just like, like to end with uh, something all three of us. Uh, Sue did leave, unfortunately. She had uh, grandchildren duty uh, right now, so she left the studio. But So the three of us, as we're left here, are all passionate about training, about education. Uh, and, and we're going to talk about that quite a bit uh, on the pad- podcast over the next uh, few months. Um, and, of course, we've been uh, sponsoring the boot camps, the uh, nurse manager boot camp, which is in a couple weeks, and the uh, administrators boot camp, which is in August. Don't forget to sign up. That necessary because uh, we are uh, we're, we're having a hard time re- recruiting people, uh, and and I think what's happening now is we're recruiting people so quickly. Uh, if they're breathing, they're hired, which means that sometimes they're coming to our centers 
uh, without all the proper training. That, yeah, that's not a good scenario. So talk a little bit about that. Focus on infection control for now. Um, you know, what, what do you think we should be doing in infection control? How much contact should we be having uh, with uh, the employees after they've been hired? And what should we be doing with them beforehand? I mean, we know that 30-day rule, but let's face it. <laughs> Uh, 30 days meaning you need to do your orientation within 30 days. Well, I'll tell you, and I tell our clients, I tell places that I survey, if you're doing the training for a new employee 29 days after they've been hired, that patient has been at it's risk too, for those 29 late. days. It's too so, late. Go ahead. You first. <laughs> well, when you hire somebody new, make sure that they understand your expectations. That's about anything. If you're the administrator, tell them what you expect. You tell them that because of COVID, infection prevention has now become a top priority in your center. You don't cut corners. You won't tolerate cutting corners, that they have to follow the protocols. Then show them the protocols. This is what we do at the center, and we do it 100% of the time. That's mask wearing, hand hygiene, whatever else is in your protocol. And then just say, and you will be held responsible for this knowledge and also for compliance. And I think that I know that sounds harsh, yeah. but if a CMS surveyor is in your center and they're not doing it, guess who's going to pay the consequences? Your center is. So you don't want to go there. And I think as part of the educational process, we owe it to our new employees to teach them well. Also, consider that many of them come from the hospital. Yeah. They have a huge infection prevention team, and it's really their problem to enforce that everything gets done correctly. We don't have that luxury in it's surgery awesome. centers. You know, and another thing that I, I think would be wise um, is to listen to your new employee because they might have some really good ideas or suggestions that obviously we don't see because we're there all the time. So if you've been there for six years and your other nurses have been there anywhere from, uh, say, uh, 10 to three years, there's no new ideas coming in. Um, or, or practices and, uh, the new person that just came on might realize there's no sharps container at the bedside. What am I supposed to do with my, um, intracath after I start an IV? Well, what a great idea. You know, everyone else is used to carrying it across the room to the nurse's station. And here's this new person that is like, wait, but that's not safe. And then you, you should sit back and, Listen, Lori, that's a, that's a great point because you could part of your expectations can be we all have a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. So if you have a better mousetrap, please tell us about that yeah. mousetrap. Right. And you won't be it's not like the people that used to we used to hire and they say, well, when I worked at my other job, yeah. we did X, Y, Z. When I worked at my other job, we did ABC. That's not what we're asking them to do. We're asking them to show us a better way of doing things. Right. And right. when looking at our center uh, with eyes. Uh, that are different from all the people that have been doing it before. It, there's, there's that. There's a huge that advantage huge, to that. You know, the, yeah. those few weeks before they really get integrated into that operation, where they still are looking at it without uh, the mm -hmm. perspective of everything that's been done up until then. Right, and and um, be picky <coughs> with your mentors. Uh, yeah, well choose choose a staff person that has good interpersonal skills. They might not be the best um, hands on. Or, but they might nurture that new employee, and then you can have someone else teach the other skills that perhaps that mentor um, isn't as strong in. Know know their strengths um, and and use them. But that 
that's your that's going to be their um, first impression of of your center and whether they're going to want to stay or not. Don't just be you know if I I was a very mean person. I, I probably still am. Um, but notice my restraint, by the way. <laughs> just uh, I, I just want to say how difficult it is. Uh, to... Right, but 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 the whole thing is. So then, why would you put the new person with me if I'm just gonna be mean? I, I, the new person's not going to want to stay, and and I, not necessarily mean as in cruel or rude, but maybe I don't want to uh, share my knowledge, or maybe I expect you to already know things. Who knows? But but you know how people interact with each other. You see how they are in the lot, and you know in the lounge, and and even talking with um, physicians and stuff. You know, so so pick the person that's going to nurture your new staff member because they're going to be up and running pretty soon because we don't have the luxury of having a long um, orientation. So, you know, think about that as well. I, I, you know, that's just, you know, personal. And, and it's nice for them to learn from many people, not just one person, because everybody has a strength. But um, their initial um, uh, welcome committee should be your friendly person that that cares that can about relate them. to them exactly yeah. mm-hmm. yep well this has been a pleasure i am so grateful for you to uh, pop into the studio here and uh, spend the time with our audience here i'm sure this has been very valuable and uh, again thank you for your time thank you you're welcome In this segment, we like to discuss other learning opportunities in the ASC industry. If you would like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at ASCPodcast.com. The New York Association of ASC Spring Virtual Conference will be held on two half days, June 10th and 11th. For more information, visit nysaasc.org. The Arizona Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual conference and exhibits, June 24th, through 25th, 2021 at J.W. Marriott Camelback Inn in Scottsdale, Arizona. The Florida Society of Ambulatory Surgical Center's annual conference and trade show is July 14th through the 16th, 2021 at the Hilton Orlando Bonnet Creek in Orlando. The AORN Expo 2021 is August 7th through the 10th, 2021 at the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida. And we were trying to get to the last one, which mm-hmm. was canceled at the last minute there. Yeah. Unfortunately, we are not going to be around that week. So, But we are going to be around for California <laughs> Ambulatory Surgery Association's 2021 annual meeting, September 8th through the 10th, 2021 at the Hyatt Regency Huntington Beach Resort and Spa in Huntington Beach, California, one of our favorite places to visit. Mm -hmm. The Illinois Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual meeting is on September 22nd, 2021 at Sheraton Lyle Naperville Hotel in Lyle, Illinois. The Ohio ASC Association's conference will be at the Hilton Columbus Polaris on September 27th and 28th and will host this two-day event, real event, featuring Mm -hmm. an exhibit hall and two full days of education. And uh, they have just asked me to be their keynote speaker, so I'm very very anxious or very, very excited to be with them. The New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers Live and in-person Roaring Twenties Conference will be held at Sleepy Hollow Hotel and Conference Center in Terrytown, New York. For more information, visit nysaasc.org. 
Um, and this will be September 29th and 30th. And the Washington Ambulatory Surgery Association's annual education conference and trade show will be November 4th and 5th, 2021 at the Tulip Resort and Spa in Tulip, Washington. And the Pennsylvania Ambulatory Surgery Association's annual meeting will be November 8th, 2021 at the Hershey Lodge in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And don't forget about uh, all the wonderful programs that we've recorded over the past year, uh, including our credentialing workshop, our infection control conference, and our uh, finance and accounting seminars. And, of course, our famous patron member program, also known as ASC Central, which is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance, operations, and financial management resource for business administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. Resources include some of our uh, virtual conferences, links, and policies and procedures, forms, drills, and discounts on services and books and access to AEU credits, and our our wonderful Saturday morning uh, (laughs) drop-in sessions. Generally, they're on on, uh, Saturday mornings, but they do uh, bounce around every once in a while. But it's an opportunity once a week to uh, sit down or, or log in virtually yep. and uh, and talk to Sue and myself. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including our research staff, travel costs, conferences when we can go, mm-hmm. equipment costs, which are rising uh, even more, and of course, <laughs> production costs. For more information, please visit ASCPodcast.com. So that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website. And spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues, and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Kalritis, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. We would like to thank our sponsor, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about their services, please visit ah-strategies.com email them at info at ah-strategies.com or call John Gailey directly at 585-594-1167. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your comments and questions. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com. <laughs>